Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, welcome to this edition of World of Intelligence by James. I'm Harry Kemsley, as usual, as your co-host and my co-conspirator is, as usual, Sean Corbett. Hello, Sean. Hi, Harry. Hi. So, in the recent times, sadly, we've seen yet another conflict emerge uh, in the world affairs, this time in Sudan. So I thought, Sean, today we might spend a bit of time looking at Sudan. But as usual, let's look at it through the prism of the so what for open source intelligence. How has open source intelligence helped us understand the situation before it started and during and so on? So to help us with that, I am delighted to invite a couple of guests from Jane's who are experts in both the field of open source intelligence. Of course, they work at Jane's, but also in the situation that's now emerged in Sudan. First of all, Maria Lampudi. Hello, Maria. Hi, Harry. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And also Heather. Heather Nysel, how are you? Hi, Harry. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Maria Lampudi is a lead analyst and manager of the Sub-Saharan African Country Intelligence Team at Jane's. She holds a master's degree in international security and was previously the Africa analyst on the Jane's military capabilities desk. She joined Jane's in 2019, coming from the European External Action Services mission to the Philippines, where she worked as a political officer covering the Mindanao peace process and developments in the South China Sea. Maria also worked as a research assistant at the Bureau of the Greek Defense Attaché in France and at the NATO Energy Security Center of Excellence in Lithuania. She speaks Greek, French, Italian, Portuguese, Russian, Serbian and Spanish. Our second guest, Heather. Heather Nysel is the lead Sub-Saharan Africa analyst of Jane's Country Intelligence. She specializes in terrorism and insurgency, mainly focusing on the Sahel, West Africa and the Horn of Africa. She's also currently the Northeast Asia and Oceania Country Intelligence Desk Manager. Heather joined Jane's in 2019 as well, working specifically at Jane's Terrorism and Insurgency Center. Prior to this, she worked at a global political and security risk consultancy, focusing on global terrorism, travel risks and threat intelligence projects for French corporate banking clients. Welcome to you both and thanks for joining. So great, really good to have you both with us for the podcast. Let's start to make sure that we're all on the same page in terms of what's actually happening in Sudan. There are, of course, many different perspectives of what might be happening, but what would be your, Maria, what would be your view about a brief summary? What's going on? What's the context of what's happening in Sudan right now? Um, so it's been nearly a month now uh, since conflict has begun again, yet again, in Sudan. On the 15th of April, we saw a significant military escalation between uh, the Sudanese armed forces and the paramilitary rapid support forces. So this is quite interesting um, from many perspectives. To begin with, the country has been in a political, security, social, humanitarian turmoil for decades. Um, as I'm sure you, you will all know, um, in 2019, there was a popular movement um, of months-long protests that led to the overthrow of uh, al-Bashir, former President al-Bashir, who had been ruling the country under, under an authoritarian authoritarian, sorry, uh, regime for nearly uh, 30 years. 
that was a glimpse of hope into uh, Sudan's future that was quite short-lived, unfortunately. So there was a civilian-led government that existed, a uh, transitional government that existed from uh, the summer of 2019 until roughly um, October 2021, when the country saw another coup. Now, the two warring factions of today used to be quite close allies and partners. Uh, they worked together uh, to overthrow the civilian government in October 2021 and appeared to be in quite an harmonious uh, cohabitation since. Um, Al-Burhan, who is leading the Sudanese armed forces, was the president of the Trans Transitional Sovereignty Council, while um, Tagalo, who is leading the Rapid Support Forces, has been the vice president of uh, the Transitional Council. So there was quite a lot of cooperation between the two. Now, back to what's happening right now. There had been an escalation of tensions between the two figures since late 2022, particularly focused around significant delays in the political transition, involvement of civilian groups and particular armed groups with a tribal background in the country. But most importantly, I believe what ended up leading to that uh, military escalation uh, was a disagreement on the way that the rapid support forces would be integrated into the Sudanese armed forces. So all these factors combined with a generalized humanitarian crisis in the country, a lot of grievances, uh, social, political, ethnic, have led to this escalation that has unfortunately been going on for almost a month now, despite successive ceasefires and despite efforts from the international community to, to really stop what's, uh, what's going on in the ground. Fantastic. Um, Heather, before we come on to discuss what we might have seen from an open source perspective going into this conflict that might have helped us understand it, Sean, your view on the significance of this yet another com conflict in Sudan, what do you think of the implications of this more widely? Just want to put the context around Sudan. Maria's done a great job of helping us understand how we got to where we have, but what are the, what are the implications around it, Sean? Yeah, thanks, Harry. Uh, this is more geostrategic, I think, than many people think, actually, because the possible possibility for contagion, um, that's both from a security perspective. I mean, you know, we can go back to South Sudan, for example, that was only became an independent state in 2011, who have taken some of the oil resources, but now they're quite worried about stability for all sorts of reasons. But you've got you've got the internal to external. So you've got the issues of potentially food insecurity, certainly water insecurity. We might talk about that in the, in the Nile a little bit later on but you've also got the external actors so Sudan has been a supporter of and supported by Russia for a long time you've now got uh, Saudi Arabia who are trying to broker um, some peace discussions partly because that they were supported by Sudan against the Houthis in Yemen um, you know rather than necessarily altruistic reasons but you've got all sorts of external actors who you know see stability as being a, a, a necessity partly because they don't want to drain themselves in terms of providing humanitarian and possibly uh, military relief as well. So, you know, I think I think there's more going on there in terms of geostrategic um, situation than just what's happening in there. So we've talked about the impact on the country and the immediate. Are there any further far reaching players that we should be thinking about, Maria, in this conflict? 
I believe so. So since the overthrow of al-Bashir and the 2021 coup, both al-Burhan and his second in, in line, Daglo, have been quite close to the Russian government. And we've seen that initially with agreements favoring Russia's access to the Sudanese gold mines and natural resources that were of interest to Russia, arguably, as a way to circumvent Western sanctions. But also, we've seen a clear support from the Sudanese state to Russia during the invasion of Ukraine, and which was voiced both in United Nations votes, but also with uh, with visits, official visits of the leaders to Russia. But what's equally of importance here is that throughout the political turmoil that Sudan has been in since 2019, negotiations on the establishment of a Russian Navy base on the coast of Sudan have continued. And interestingly, in the beginning of 2023, we saw some more information uh, on the progress made on that. So I believe there is some relevance for Russia as an actor in this conflict as well. And it's interesting to see how this will evolve. And just very quickly to pick up on what Maria was saying, and, and I don't know if she agrees with this, but this seems as opposed to being an ideological, religious, cultural war. This is this for me is more two belligerents that want to maintain their own power base and keep themselves in power. That might be something that, that we can talk to later. But, you know, the fact it's got an internal element to a strong internal element, I think is is worth saying. Talking about contagion, one thing that I didn't cover is the, the almost the reverse contagion. Now, you know, bearing in mind, you go back to Sudan, which did harbour Osama bin Laden and did have, um, you know, that those sort of uh, organisations affiliated with Sudan in the old days. Are we going to see um, a almost a reverse of violent extremist organisations moving into Sudan, particularly if either the belligerents or both the belligerents, you know, lose power? Because I think the reason it's been relatively um, relatively untouched by the VEOs is because the two factions have been very strong and there has been structure and there has been armed forces. Now, if they fall apart, either because they cancel each other out or because they just lose their authority, are we going to see a reverse of VEOs moving in as they always do to poorly and ungoverned spaces when there is significant insecurity and a surfeit of unemployed young men that need an outlet? Uh, do you think we're going to see that? I'll let Maria jump in after me because she might have thoughts on this. But I think, you know, I don't want to kind of tack on a probability assessment just yet. But I, I would say security vacuum, it would make sense given the, the country's history the existing armed groups that do operate in the country. A couple of years ago, you know, there was kind of a little surge in Islamist militancy as well. So I, I could see that happening, particularly as the the kind of humanitarian situation worsens, grievances increase, that sort of thing. You had the exact same thing, Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, you know, the, the, the tri-border area. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised. Maria, did you want to add to that? I completely agree with uh, with what both of you mentioned there, and I think we've already started seeing signs of that old Islamic faction existing in Sudan, sort of emerging as as a party of this conflict, with allegations at this stage that have not been able uh, to be corroborated. But there have been allegations of either sides mobilizing Islamic militants in order to increase 
their legitimacy and increase their capability, particularly in the Darfur region and other uh, regions in Sudan. So if that trend is confirmed, if Islamic militants internally become involved in this conflict, then I can certainly see the risk of the external element being involved too. Absolutely. I think um, your last point there, Sean, is is very uh, relevant. An element uh, that sort of led to this escalation was also the failure of Al-Burhan to stick to um, what the agreement uh, foresaw in terms of um, a transitional civilian-led government. So I believe to a certain extent the paramilitary, paramilitary forces saw that as an opportunity to initiate a power struggle between the two factions to see um, who will maintain control over armed forces in the future, but also who will maintain control over um, particular Sudanese states that are quite uh, resource-rich, as you were mentioning. Okay, I would like to then pivot this conversation now into the so what for open source information and how we derive intelligence from it. So Heather, maybe I can come to you. What were we seeing? How did open source information that we get intelligence from, how did that help us predict the military escalation? And what about the indicators coming out of this conflict itself now for the contagion that Sean's just talked about? So let's talk about what we were seeing beforehand from open sources. And then are there any things we can take from that that might help us understand how there's a contagion factor that Sean's generated? Heather? Thanks, Sarah. Well, firstly, just to say that Austin has been amazing for you know covering the conflict you know it's probably the most reliable means to gather and verify information in you know non-transparent authoritarian regimes such as you know Sudan and elsewhere um it enabled us to kind of collect real-time information and corroborate with you know background knowledge and data and um and it was very much a kind of cross-team um, effort across chains as well. You know, we have different teams that cover military capabilities. Our OI3 team, which is Orbot's inventory installation and imagery. Um, so, yeah, it enables us there to kind of um, collect information, collect data, verify claims of warring factions and delineate areas of control, which is difficult to do, of course, because in a conflict, things are changing. But um, to speak to your definition of OSINT and, and kind of one of the elements is um, you know, um, indicators or warnings, which which you mentioned, you know, um, in various podcasts. For us in country intelligence, we've been working on a country stability indicators product, um, which measures the risk of, you know, a disorderly government collapse, forceful transfer of power or fragmentation of power. And, you know, since January 2023, we had, you know, um, ranked Sudan among the top three states most, like most likely to experience a coup. Um, it ranked 3.6 out of 4, you know, uh, it had a high, you know, a very elevated military coup risk um, score, primarily driven by its, you know, coup, coup risk history. You know, more coups have occurred in Sudan than in any other state on the continent. So, um, you know, I think since 1950, it has experienced 17 attempted or successful coups. So um, there's a strong precedent there for, um, for military coups. Excellent. Sean, do you want to come in there? Yeah, I think Heather's made a really important point in terms of the ability for OSINT to react quickly 
But the reason that you were able to react quickly is because you'd be looking at it in detail for a long time before that. And that goes down to the, you know, prioritization of efforts. So, you know, being being my usual indiscreet self, I, I would say that potentially, certainly at a diplomatic level, we were slightly caught unawares of what was going to happen and how quickly it was going to. And there was a huge information void early on, as you remember. Um, now, you know, we were, and I don't know what the demand signal was for James, but you know, there was a real demand for what on earth is going on, partly for to, to evacuate our own people, but partly to understand the situation. And uh, this was one of those examples where because you have that expertise within James um, and that deep background, it, you know, and had been monitoring it. So all those really important things, you're able to get up to speed quite quickly. Uh, I'm sure Heather's going to come on to some of the other advantages about, you know, how were we able to do that with OSINT when we were getting, again, diplomatically, people were saying, well, you know, all the internet's off, we can't see this, we can't say that, we don't really know what's going on. And yeah, it looked to me like you had a really good handle, you know, generically about what was going on, on almost on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, so Heather, was that was that entirely based on prior work that set us up with a great foundation to analyse what we could see? Or were you actually able to see into things that open source were providing us that um, we would normally use, but were actually available to us? What what sort of sources were we getting out of open sources that were helpful to you in terms of understanding what is going on now? Well, I think Murray, our lead analyst, had, you know, a good handle on the situation prior, you know, particularly, you know, with our country stability indicators. But, um, you know, as the conflict was kind of... Um, you know, at the outbreak of the conflict, we were kind of on social media quite a bit. Um, You know, both sides have used social media themselves to kind of release statements. And it's not just in Sudan, you know, we see that a lot with a lot of governments in Africa, a lot of non-state armed groups, they'll release statements, claims, some of them unverifiable, maybe not necessarily unverifiable, but, you know, skewed statements, let's say. So, um, we, we were kind of monitoring that sort of thing. Um, videos as well. So kind of any imagery that was emerging. Uh, we have a satellite imagery team as well that we're kind of monitoring um, areas of conflict um, just to see what, what was what was going on. It certainly sounds like a very um, multidisciplined team. Is there anything about the open source, Maria, from your experience in this particular conflict that stood out for you? Sean and I in the past have talked about Ukraine being the sort of coming of age of open source. Many people have looked at Ukraine as being a conflict where open source actually started to get in front of other intelligence sources in the more classified environment. What's your view about this conflict? Is it is it similarly open source or is it actually pretty much just proving what we already knew about the power of open source? Maria. I think um, this particular conflict has highlighted once again how valuable open source intelligence uh, can be in conflict situations, situations where um, things are developing quite rapidly and particularly in countries that have a tradition of um, quite high media censorship, um, internet not working, uh, as you said, or access to internet sources being quite limited and restricted by the government. So in the case of Sudan, just going back to to the point that Heather mentioned earlier, it was key for us uh, to have a sort of a database uh, of sources that we can refer to. And why that was important is because that allowed us to relatively quickly 
tag a confidence level uh, on these sources. And that's quite important, I believe, when it comes to validating claims, uh, verifying claims. So um, social media imagery footage um, allowed us to corroborate what we were seeing through commercial satellite imagery analysis. And in some cases, uh, it allowed us also to understand to what extent those claims were just propaganda from one of the warring factions trying to establish a status quo that was really different from what's on the ground. And I think this will become, again, quite relevant in the next stage, whenever that comes, uh, overseas fire agreement, where we will be trying to understand uh, who controls what in Sudan. Um, yeah. So, Sean, you and I have spoken about this before, about how open source can be used for uh, understanding what's happening on the ground, sure, but also for the disproving of disinformation. And it sounds to me, from what Heather and Maria have said, that actually one of the benefits they've had from open source is that foundation and intelligence, I understand the environment, but I also understand where good sources probably are, and then carrying that into the conflict itself, being able to then validate what they're they're seeing and hearing. Does that sure not further underscore in ever blacker ink the importance of having that long enduring open source look at an environment so that when if things were to go wrong, you've actually got that foundation to base your analysis on? Yeah, absolutely spot on, Harry. It's exactly what I was going to say, actually. If you I was just reflecting on our over two year journey now since we started these podcasts. And if we go back right to the start when we really thought that the, the, the power of open source intelligence was really providing that contextual layer, but also the, the baseline foundational stuff. And look where we are now that, yes, that is still very, very relevant. And it's essential to do what we're doing now. But, you know, following a monitoring a conflict in not far off near real time, but really important, as Maria said, you know, information operations now are a, a fundamental part of, you know, the continuation of diplomacy by military means. And so the disinformation, misinformation could be if you take it right from, you know, you start from scratch, you could be taken all over the place. and It's just not true. But so having those people that are looking at it all times, I suspect that the community, the government community was probably struggling a little bit with that at the start. But having people that have been looking at it in detail and are in a position to say, no, that doesn't sound right because of this. Or we would expect that to have been said because it's supporting this particular course of action, I think is really fundamental to understanding it. So, so I agree, a combination of both of those things, the fact that you've still got to have that deep knowledge, but you can also react because you do have that deep knowledge. Where do you think, Sean, in your mind right now with Sudan, the classified environment will be struggling. What is it the things that the classified environment can't do? I go to uh, Heather and then Maria in terms of, okay, so how could open source fix that? Sean, where, where do you think classified will be struggling right now? I think it purely in terms of the bandwidth, as I mentioned before, the capacity to focus exquisite, very, very capable assets in the right place in the right time. So for me, you know, the open source intelligence can cover a lot, but fairly broadly, which will trigger the, the intelligence community to focus much more narrowly. So if, if, if the will is there within the intelligence community, do not underestimate, and we, we shouldn't go into detail here, the capabilities the intelligence community has, but it's a case of where it shifted, at what time, what prioritization, and of course, getting that expertise in there. You know, there will be the odd Sudan Sudanese expert within the, the intelligence community. Of course, there will It'll be more than the odd one, actually, but it's getting them focused in the right place 
and getting them up to speed quickly. So I think it's almost, you know, it's not triage, but it's it's getting that broad area open source intelligence and then saying, right, okay, that's the area we need to concentrate in, and then and then applying the exquisite collection and, and analytical assets to that. And we, we mentioned we've mentioned before mis and disinformation in strategic information operations, tactical information operations. Heather, is it not fair to say that open source almost certainly has an advantage here in terms of the ability to understand the validity of or otherwise of information pushed into places like open sources by warring factions? Is this, this is not an area we can succeed with open source that might be better than the classified environment, in your opinion? I believe so. I believe it takes quite a good deal of monitoring, though. It's 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 a full-time job, you know, and you have teams that do that, you know, companies that do that. I think in, you know, Africa, what we're, we're seeing now in Burkina Faso, uh, Russia's involvement, some of the, the kind of propaganda campaigns that are being put out, some of the videos that are that are being put out as well uh, about, you know, Burkina Bay, American Burkina Bay um, citizens speaking, you know, about, you know, Russia's involvement or kind of it's very slanted towards in a positive light towards Russia. So I think on open source, I, I just I, I think we could benefit greatly or monitoring misinformation, disinformation. I, I, I can't I don't know how you would how classified intelligence would be any better than OSINT. Maria? Um, yeah, certainly I agree that there is a lot of value there, as Heather said, in monitoring disinformation, but also equally importantly, monitoring what the internal audience rea reaction is to that disinformation. And that is something that we can certainly do on open sources. So that's equally as important, I'd say. This became even more relevant with the conflict in Khartoum, which is a quite dense urban environment where satellite imagery, certainly commercial satellite imagery available, can help us assess the situation only to a certain extent. So what we saw during our research and analysis is that open source information was probably the only way for us to understand uh, what's happening down to the neighborhood level. Of course, I'm not saying that we were able to create a perfect picture of who's in control of what far from that it's quite yeah. quite challenging to do that but just to say that open source information on social media or other sources um, can allow us to be a bit more granular where satellite imagery is just not good enough yeah so um just before we come back to some of the specifics we talked about there for Sudan, Heather, maybe I can turn to you then in terms of reflecting on this conflict and the non-state armed group activity in this area. We've mentioned how many times Sudan has been through coups in, in previous decades, but and not comparing against that, but in terms of non-state armed group, is there anything in particular about Sudan or this territory or this part of Africa indeed that we should be noting when we're looking at this conflict? Well, I think, you know, Sean earlier mentioned kind of the external element of um, of the conflict as well. You, you have Sudan that borders Chad um, and Ethiopia, both of which, you know, face have faced conflict, intercommunal, ethnically motivated violence, um, insurgencies, Islamist insurgencies. Um, and now I, I know Chad, they've mobilized their forces to the border and we've reports of armed militias trying to cross over into Chad, eastern Chad, where, you know, a, a couple of years ago you had, you know, significant 
intercommunal clashes. Ethiopia, they've only just signed um, a peace deal with the TPLF, the Tigray People's Liberation Force, in, in November and are, you know, having discussions with the with the OLA, the Oromo Liberation Army. Um, so there's definitely, you know, an ethnic ethnocultural kind of nationalistic element in, in those in those in that violence as well and i think you see a lot of internally displaced people moving now towards those countries and you do have to wonder what sort of impact it will have um for the stability of those countries which ethiopia would you call it the most stable probably not and uh, or n- not the most media free either so um yeah you would definitely so let, me take, let me just take you back then Heather if I can to a question we discussed a few minutes ago about the indicators that we were using going in and you mentioned some of the sort of country risk uh, stability indicators that then are you seeing yet from open sources that you're able to access any sign as you just said that the country's neighboring or even connected by the means that are starting to suffer as a result of what we're seeing in Sudan is there a is there a contagion effect that Sean mentioned in his earlier comment is there any sense sign or sense of that yet i think i know in ethiopia particularly in amara region which borders Sudan, they have their own issues, you know. Um, will they think, well, we don't want all these IDPs coming in here when, you know, our people are starving? Um, you know, there was kind of a lack of humanitarian aid going into certain regions in Ethiopia. Um, yeah, I, I, I have. We haven't been able to measure so, that yet. Perhaps we okay. have to look. Let me ask the question about contagion in terms of the IDPs, the the movement of populations. Sure. John mentioned earlier the risks around this sort of thing being a contagion. Maybe it is about uh, internally displaced people hitting the borders, borders that are on the other side of it, no better off in terms of resources than the, where they've just come from. So is there a contagion factor there, do you think, Heather, in terms of those movements of people? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've seen reports as well in Amara region in Ethiopia of um armed militias charging um, Sudanese civilians crossing the border. Now, an administrator of that particular area in Ethiopia denied those claims, but um, I think we'll see a lot more of that. You know, as you as you mentioned, those, those areas aren't particularly better off. Um, you know, they've only just kind of settled down themselves and, you know, are suffering from food security as well, as you mentioned earlier, Sean. I absolutely agree there. And just to sort of um, showcase the scale of what we're uh, looking at and what neighbouring countries will be facing um, as we speak now. So we're almost a month in the conflict. There have been around 900,000 internally displaced people, but also displaced to neighbouring countries um, with Chad, Egypt, uh, Ethiopia, South Sudan, having seen the largest numbers of uh, internally displaced people that were already in a quite dire humanitarian situation. So um, from reports that I have seen, I think uh, the international communities looking to mobilise resources that amount to nearly two billion US dollars in order to be able to support um, the humanitarian crisis there. So I think it's a pretty large scale development indeed. Yeah, so Sean, I know you've been involved in things like evacuation planning around uh, individuals who have the right to leave. I would imagine a situation that's just been described by Maria and Heather with mass population movements 
and evacuation ops in the middle of that that cannot be a straightforward thing to do at all no it's not and and again i think there was quite a lot of misunderstanding when the evacuations first happened i mean you're talking a huge country here with a lot of people in there and getting the the granularity of where entitled people eps as we call them are is is always difficult partly because it depends on those individuals at some stage before things go wrong to tell people where they are. And of course, the, you know, the fog of war, the confusion. So it's never a straightforward thing. And you have to, unless you want to do a forced entry, which in this case, because of the, the numbers of forces involved is just impractical, then yeah. you've got to, you, you need a secure base, which they, which they ultimately got a, 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 again at the, at the agreement of the belligerents to be fair, and, and got people out. The problem is, is getting people to those secure locations, which is not easy. So it is an incredibly complex thing. And there are many of these cases where, you know, there has never been an option to go and get everybody out. There's just, there's just not the, nobody has the capacity to do so. So it, it, it really is best effort. Yeah. Now, one of the things that's come out from this conversation for me in the, in the recent minutes is how frequently I've heard from you, Heather and Maria, about what we can do with open source and how valuable they can be. And maybe it's the actual only source we've got of what's going on on the ground. That strikes me as being one of those statements where commercial or publicly available information could actually support government activity like the evacuation I've just uh, been discussing with Sean there. Now, what are the kind of things that an organization like Jane's can provide to a government who is looking at an evacuation? Or what are the kind of things that we can provide from country intelligence, for example, that might help the planning from an open source environment like Jane's that would help the planning for an evacuation? What sort of things are available off the shelf? Maria, maybe I can start with you. Absolutely. So I think um, in, in this event of a conflict between two quite capable forces, what Jane's can do is provide an assessment of the respective capability, um, which is something that we, we uh, do monitor in general, but particularly since the conflict began, our um, teams have been able to track attrition, to track um, damages that both forces have suffered, but also weapons that have been seized by both parties. And that's uh, quite interesting, tied with information that James can provide on the respective bases uh, that these forces maintain in order to create a picture of which areas are accessible and which are not, uh, which I believe is quite relevant to the evacuation efforts. But uh, in addition to that, we have been also monitoring civilian infrastructure such as airports, airfields and bridges. We certainly can do um, a better job at tracking these things. And that's what the Sudan conflict and crisis has, um, has shown to us, that there is a lot of room for even more heavy OSINT when it comes to tracking these things. But I guess that's, uh, that sort of information is of immediate operational relevance, uh, as well as the, the broader foundational intelligence that we can provide. Heather, just to come to you um, in just a moment, Sean, the times that you've been doing planning of this sort, like evacuation ops for entitled personnel, how frequently have you encountered situations where you actually didn't have that fundamental foundational intelligence you needed about the situation on the ground, available infrastructure, the state of the roads. How often did you find yourself in that situation? And therefore, how easy would it have been to plug into an open source intelligence organization to get that if you could? 
that's quite a long question actually because there were times undoubtedly where we had nothing on the shelves i mean we used to we used to look um or create these what we call joint contingency plans where we prioritize where we thought things would happen and we used to ma maintain those same on an annual basis i mean this is the day before the days before everything was electronic so we literally had folders on the uh within j5 that we used to produce for j2 um but invariably when something went wrong it was somewhere that we hadn't thought of and at that stage all you had i mean i'm going back quite a way now all you had was access to open source intelligence diplomatic reporting and it wasn't anywhere near as sophisticated uh, as it is now just to just to uh, piggyback on something maria was saying though in terms of understanding the environment um orders of battle which which is kind of what you made about who's got what sort of equipment on each side and as Maria said, it's not just about numbers of kits and what its capabilities might be, which I know James is absolute bread and butters, but bread and butter, but it's also understanding how well maintained they are, what the doctrine are, what the concepts of operations, how they work in a combined arms perspective. Um, all that matters, and I know that's something that you've been doing in terms of it's not just about this side's got, you know, 120 of these tanks and this side's got 50, therefore they win. Of course, being urban warfare, a lot of it as well is that even though, you know, the um, uh, the SPLA has probably more equipment and probably knows how to use it in, in a normal and conventional environment, you know, the, the RSF is is neutralised some of that by doing some urban fighting. So it's not just about the all bats. And I think Maria covered that really well. Yeah, Heather, what else, what else can we do in an open source organisation that will help us populate the mind, fill the, the data for planning an evacuation like this? Well, I think for us, um, if I can just speak to our other products as well, well, you know, CSIs, you know, all of this kind of interconnected data helps inform our sub-indicators, our indicators, but also we've kind of assisted previously with, you know, Afghanistan. Um, a lot of our forecasting scenarios um, pieces that we've written as well have focused on conflicts like this. So we've we've focused on Afghanistan when it fell to the Taliban. We've also looked at Lake Chad, the Lake Chad Basin and, you know, uh, Will I Garbar Fakia slash Boko Haram, you know, its operations there and how um, violence would progress. Um, so I think that that's really important. So even, even if a, a, a conflict hasn't broken out yet or it hasn't escalated let's say you know as Sean mentioned something going wrong uh, you know and scrambling I think you know being able to forecast and kind of work with these scenarios um, also kind of enables you know the customers and um, to deal with those situations. So it's there's a forecasting element there's mm. a foundational intelligence aspect which fills the gaps populates the mind as i was saying earlier but also then when the situation starts to develop and you're getting some insights from various sources the lack of a foundation means that you can't really understand the implications the so what of those insights that you're getting so it's the combination of all of that and then sean the point you made earlier about the enduring uh, look at something which gives you the ability to see the abnormal because it stands out to you you have the judgment on it all of these things feel like the contributions that open source information and the intelligence you can derive from it is supporting into the our understanding of the Sudan um, conflict. 
Now, because time is always against this, I'll um, start to spool us to a close. I usually say draw stumps, but not everyone understands cricket, so I'll just say spool to a close. Um, what I will always do at the end of these uh, sessions is ask for your one takeaway. <clears throat> Sean always goes last, that means that he's got nothing left to say and we've all said it for him. So if I ask you, Maria and Heather, to give your, what's the one thing you want the listeners to take away from how does open source intelligence support us either generally or has it sort of helped us in specific circumstances around Sudan? So I'll start with you, Maria. What's the uh, the one takeaway for the audience in terms of the power and utility of open source around the Sudan conflict? Thank you, Hari. I guess when it comes to OSINT and its value, uh, my main takeaway from the Sudanese conflict is that it can help inform decision makers um, on what the actual situation is on the ground. For us as analysts, it's really the wealth and breadth of information uh, that we can find in open sources, but also our analytical lens uh, that actually creates that value. So I think there's certainly value for governments and agencies that are um, involved in efforts to either uh, de-escalate the conflict or carry out evacuation operations, engage in peace talks. There's a value that OSINT can bring in providing a more up-to-date, uh, a near real-time understanding of the situation on the ground. Um, and then I think the nature of OSINT, which is um, being more accessible to a variety of audiences, not just government um, agencies, but also um, non-governmental organizations, civil society organizations from the country that is actually suffering from the conflict. That is also quite beneficial to uh, addressing humanitarian challenges on the ground. So I think altogether, it's a great tool to understand what's happening and try and prepare uh, for any future action. Thanks, Maria. That's great. Heather. Well, I completely agree, Maria. But um, no, for me, what I find um, the most useful and the most interesting, because there's a lot of noise um, on open source, particularly on social media, that sort of thing. And perhaps because I come from the more terrorism and insurgency background and I monitor non-state armed groups and their propaganda, rhetoric, narratives, I, in this current conflict in Sudan, I found kind of monitoring, you know, the the social media accounts of both sides, you know, the respective social media accounts, most interesting, you know, um, just seeing the narrative that they're spinning, some sort of indication of intent, you know, it might not actually reflect their true capability, that sort of thing. So there's a bit of reading between the lines you have to do at times. And I, I find that really interesting. And I think I would want the customers or our audience um, to kind of keep an eye on that. I'm just going to come back to you on that one point you made right at the end there. In order to see between the lines, do you not need to spend as long as I know you have, Heather, looking at the lines? Because the lack of understanding of what you're reading might allow you to actually not spot what's between the lines. Is that not a matter of just how long you've been doing it and how much expertise you've got in it that allows you to be that clear about what's between the lines? I think partially, you know, you do need that foundational intelligence, but also I think you need to remain objective, unbiased, and that combined with some sort of foundational intelligence. 
Sure, you're your one takeaway. <laughs> so, as ever, I've been hypercritical of my own tribe, probably unfairly, because undoubtedly, you know, there is some understanding of Sudan, and I certainly was in, in in my day. But I think the big thing for me is the is the available bandwidth to cover everything you need to. I mentioned joint contingency plans, which just nobody has the resource to actually maintain that sort of understanding on everywhere in the world. So it's a case of right, who's focusing on what prioritization which you guys seem to have got really right actually uh, particularly in this case and, and i'm sure there are others but having the bandwidth to to actually uh, surge and partner with the intelligence community for example i don't know how much government uh, or what the demand signal was from government for for you guys in this case but i suspect it was fairly fairly significant because you were all over it and all over it really quickly so it's all about augmenting the national requirement as well as informing journalists and all the rest of it but there is too much badness in the world if you want to call it that for everybody to cover everything so it's a partnership that we really need to develop and we probably need to get better at that as as a mixed community yeah i think my my last uh, and final takeaway from the conversation i've heard is is actually in two parts but connected so it's only one point i promise you sean um it's that you know talking about the joint contingency plans sean that used to be used to be uh, on the shelves they're still on the shelves they're, they're probably electronic, but they're still on the shelves, but they still need to be updated. And the only organizations that can really react fast enough, particularly if they've been looking at the problem for long enough, are out in the open source environment. Unless you've got an enormous army of people doing it, and they're doing it all the time for all parts of the world, which as you just said, Sean, they're not, it's probably only the vast armies of open source analysts out there that are doing that work that can actually fill that void and get you started in terms of your planning for whatever it is that you're facing. Well, as ever, uh, time has um, beaten us. We've got to uh, draw a close to this. Both Maria and Heather, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today about the situation in Sudan, but also, of course, focusing, as we do in this podcast, on the power, utility, and factors to consider with open source intelligence. If any of our listeners have any particular questions about Sudan or indeed about open source, as ever, they can reach out to us. But let me stop by saying thank you, Maria. Thank you, Heather, for your time today. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. And thank you, Sean, as always, for your contribution. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.